Hey, everybody, you're about to hear our final episode of the Essential Mitch series. It's about the transformation of the federal judiciary. But first, really quick, I want you to think about your local NPR member station. Giving to that station right now, as we close out a year that has been so intense, will make a huge difference. Most of us who work at Embedded at one point or another worked at or with an NPR member station. So we can say from experience, they are everything. They are dedicated and hardworking people who cover important local news that often would not get covered otherwise. They also help pay for NPR's national programming, like Embedded and any other NPR podcast you like. And the thing is, 2020 has been hard for them too. So please consider donating right now to your NPR station. Whatever you can do is fine. Please do it. Go to donate.npr.org slash embedded. Again, that's donate.npr.org slash embedded. Thanks. Here's the show. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell could be the most powerful Republican in the country come January, once President Trump leaves office. That is, if McConnell keeps a majority in the Senate, that of course will be determined by runoff elections in Georgia next month. If McConnell does keep the job, he'll have a lot of say about what a Joe Biden administration can and can't do. This is why we've been re-airing our series about him. McConnell has been a pretty consequential guy these past few years, namely by pushing through a record number of federal judges, including three Supreme Court justices. On last week's show, you heard him justify his decision to hold open the Supreme Court seat that could have gone to President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. When he gets criticized for that, he says, the Democrats did it first. So this week, we're going to go back and look at some of the well-known and not-so-well-known battles over Supreme Court nominees and see if what McConnell says is true. Okay, here's the original episode. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded from NPR. We talked a lot in our episodes on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell about how after Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died, McConnell did something no one had done in more than 150 years. He refused to hold hearings for the nominee to fill that seat, Merrick Garland. But there's a part of the Merrick Garland story that we actually hadn't heard until recently. It starts with a Kansas senator named Jerry Moran. Jerry Moran, who's, I don't want to describe him as milk toast because that's sort of a rude word, but a very laid back team player in the Senate, never, ever causes a stir. This is Carl Hulse. He covers Congress for The New York Times and has just written a book about federal judicial nominations. And he says that for Mitch McConnell to be able to hold the line on this position, that Merrick Garland would not get a vote in the Senate, he needed his fellow Republicans to stand with him. But about a month after Scalia's death, Republican Senator Jerry Moran is back home in his home state, meeting with voters. Jerry Moran's in Kansas and says, you know what? You guys hired me to do a job. We should probably give Merrick Garland a hearing. That's my job. So it's such a small town. It takes a few days for that news to filter back to Washington. Everybody goes, what? Republican Senator Jerry Moran of Kansas is breaking with GOP leadership, saying the Senate should hold confirmation hearings for Garland. He's quoted as saying, I would rather have constituents complaining to me that I voted wrong on nominating somebody than saying I'm not doing my job. Jerry Moran of Kansas, quite conservative, and said, look, 
under the past rules and just the simple decorum of the Senate, not only should we have meetings, we should have hearings. So there will be- And can I just say, it wasn't like Moran was saying he was going to vote for Garland. He was just saying, hey guys, let's do what we've always done and at least have a vote. And within minutes, the outside groups were pounding him. We're going to run ads against you. We're going to primary you. We're going to make your life hell. The response then from the Tea Party Patriots was, quote, it's this kind of outrageous behavior that leads Tea Party Patriots Citizens Fund activists to think seriously about encouraging a primary opponent to run against Senator Moran in the August GOP primary. One group that threatened to primary Moran was the Judicial Crisis Network, which reportedly has spent tens of millions of dollars from undisclosed donors to help put conservatives on the courts. It's headed by Carrie Severino, and I asked her why they were so upset about what Moran had said. Well, you know, I think we, we, we felt that it was a really important principle that the American people should have a vote. Meaning hold the Scalia seat open until after the presidential election. We felt the people of Kansas probably thought the same, and obviously Senator Moran um, ultimately agreed. With just the threat of getting primaried, Jerry Moran reversed his position. And he quickly recanted and said, oh, you know what, Merrick Garland, there's no way I would ever vote for anyone like that. The opposition groups hadn't even put out ads against Moran, but Moran felt so threatened He put out an ad of his own. Senator Jerry Moran listens to Kansans. That's why Moran has fought to stop Merrick Garland from the moment he was nominated. Garland's liberal anti-gun big government used the threat of getting primary. Jerry Jerry Moran, one hundred percent no on Garland. We should say we reached out to Moran, but he did not respond. The whole Moran episode is just the latest example of how the way judges get nominated to the federal courts has become a battlefield in the bigger partisan war that's going on in our country. One minute, a senator says, let's give a nominee a vote like we've done for 150 years. And the next minute, there's a dramatic voice actor saying that senator is totally against that nominee. This might sound like whatever politics as usual in a divided country, but all this fighting is making the one branch of government that's supposed to be above it all a player in an us-versus-them game. This is not the way to run a railroad or a justice system. But it just seems to get worse and worse. This, of course, is Nina Totenberg. She has covered the Supreme Court for decades for NPR. Everybody who has any respect for the courts, liberal or conservative, wishes it could go back at least part way. And when Nina says go back... She's not talking about returning to some perfect time when nominations weren't contentious. Politics and fighting have always been part of the process. But there was a time when the fighting didn't get so out of control, when there were checks on the system that actually encouraged consensus. Those checks have almost completely gone away. And now things are so bad that presidential candidates are talking about making unprecedented changes to the Supreme Court. The conditions that created this breakdown and how it is only getting worse. That's our show today. After this break. Okay, we're back. Charles Jay has written several books on the judiciary. 
He's a law professor at Indiana University. I can, I can hear you. Can you hear me? That's great. Yes, we can totally hear you. Hooray. And he is one of the people who told us that these Senate proceedings to place nominees on federal courts have always been political. Like the nomination of Louis Brandeis in 1916. Brandeis was confirmed in a very ugly, ugly proceeding. Louis Dembitz Brandeis of Kentucky, of distinguished Jewish ancestry, so bitterly opposed as a crusading liberal. Brandeis's opponents called him a radical socialist, and some of his critics used anti-Semitic language. In the end, it took 125 days for Brandeis to be confirmed. That was the longest in history up to that point. Here's Charles Jay again. And so to say that that was the quieter, better time, I think, would be a bit of an exaggeration. But what has changed, I think, in a fundamental way is that the procedural norms that developed over time that were designed to promote consensus and compromise and and so on, uh, those are the things that you're seeing collapsing in a way that you just haven't before. Jay says that for most nominees over the decades, these norms were things like the threat of an unlimited debate, something known as a filibuster. Senators wouldn't actually start those debates, but the threat of one could force senators on the other side of the aisle to negotiate. If I threaten a filibuster, it means we need to talk more, we need to discuss this more before we proceed. The threat of a blue slip, which gave a senator from a nominee's home state a say and sometimes even a veto. At a minimum, it ensured that senators and presidents consulted pretty actively about who the best judges from a given state were. Jay says all those rules and norms helped make sure that both parties got a say in these judicial nominations. So everyone had a sense the process resulted in qualified, fair judges. What you want is that people say, I think the court's legit, and even if I disagree with their decisions, I trust the court to do the right thing. Jay says throughout the 20th century, the partisanship did increase, but it still wasn't a war. Then, in 1969, President Richard Nixon came out and said he wanted to change the nature of the Supreme Court. Nixon saw the court as too liberal. So, when there was an opening, he nominated a conservative from the South named Clement Hainsworth. Democrats opposed Hainsworth. The conservative Southern judge became the center of a storm of controversy when Senate liberals alleged that some of his judicial decisions involved possible conflicts of interest. And in the end, the Democratic-controlled Senate rejected him. So Nixon nominated another conservative from the South, Harold Carswell, and Democrats opposed him too. Like many of my colleagues, I'm deeply saddened that we have a man uh, who is at the best mediocre and at the worst a slap in the face, I think, to the judiciary. For another thing, Carswell was on the record making racist statements. And also, it turned out he had essentially lied in his testimony to the committee about his role in taking a public golf course private so that it didn't have to desegregate. It could remain a segregated facility. This is Nina Totenberg again. And at the very last moment, some members of the American Bar Association actually found documents that showed that he had 
at best misrepresented and at worst flat-out lied about his role hmm. in doing that at a time when he was the United States attorney in charge of enforcing the civil rights laws throughout the South. So Carswell was rejected. Nixon was furious about both rejections. When you strip away all the hypocrisy, the real reason for their rejection was their legal philosophy, a philosophy that I share of strict construction of the Constitution. Charles Jay says if Republicans were angry with Democrats after these two rejections, they were about to get a lot angrier. He says the moment that really marked the end of the era where rules and norms were working was the nomination of Robert Bork to the Supreme Court in 1987. It's with great pleasure and deep respect for his extraordinary abilities that I today announce my intention to nominate United States Court of Appeals Judge Robert H. Bork to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Robert Bork was a conservative judge who had worked in the Nixon administration. Here's Nina Totenberg covering Bork's nomination back in 1987. He has spoken out publicly and in his legal opinions about his view that there is no constitutional right to privacy, the right of privacy being the legal underpinning of the Supreme Court's abortion ruling. With Bork, it wasn't that Democrats opposed a conservative nominee and then found other things in his record, like ethics violations, to disqualify him. This time, they opposed the nominee strictly because of what he believed in. They thought he was too extreme a conservative. So Democrats and outside groups put up a huge fight to keep Bork off the court. Please urge your senators to vote against the Bork nomination, because if Robert Bork wins a seat on the Supreme Court, it will be for life, his life and yours. At one point, a reporter even found out Bork's video rental history. Turns out he was into whodunits, British films and costume dramas. And the debate went on for months. The Senate Judiciary Committee eventually voted against Bork. Bork said he still wanted a full vote in the Senate. Democrats said, OK. The rejection was overwhelming. Are there senators wishing to change their vote? Harry Reid, Democratic senator from Nevada, announced the results. Roll call number 348, the nomination of Robert H. Bork. The yeas are 42. The nays are 58. The nomination is not confirmed. On the day of the vote, Mitch McConnell, Republican senator from Kentucky, issued a warning. He was basically like, OK, if Democrats want to fight, we're going to fight too. I nevertheless am prepared today to say I accept the new standard. It's just asking too much of us to ignore the political implications of a nomination to the Supreme Court. We're going to do it. We're going to do it when we want to. And when we want to is going to be when the president, whoever he may be, sends up somebody we don't like. And I think from that point forward, it's the game the whole family can play. I think both sides have spent a great deal of time making life miserable for the other in the years since. And this, Charles Jay says, is when those traditions that were intended to promote bipartisanship and consensus started to disappear. After Bork, you start seeing delays working their way into the process. Then you start seeing manipulations being done. So it becomes kind of a downward death spiral in which these procedures are abused, 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 and then eliminated. 
When you ask who's responsible for this breakdown in procedures, rules, and norms, Republicans like to say, the Democrats did it first. After the break, a story where some Democrats actually admit Republicans might be right. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Dominie Impact Equity Fund, a mutual fund that seeks to align people, the planet, and profit. Check them out at investingforgood.com. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-225-FUND for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully. You may lose money. DSIL Investment Services, LLC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Herman Miller, maker of the Aeron Chair, found in Pro Sports Locker. Okay, we are back. And when you go back and look at moments when partisan fighting over judicial nominations led to that death spiral that Charles Jay was talking about, there's this one name that often comes up. A high-profile nomination to a lower federal court, one that Republican senators still talk about today. Miguel Estrada was treated very poorly. Miguel Estrada. Miguel Estrada. The Miguel Estrada case. I will call it Miguel Estrada's Revenge. Miguel Estrada was born in Honduras, came to the U.S. when he was 17, didn't speak much English. He later went to Columbia College, Harvard Law School, then he worked in the Justice Department. Very distinguished works in the Solicitor General's office. Again, this is Carl Hulse from the New York Times. So it's 2001. George W. Bush has just become president, and he nominates 11 judges to the lower courts. One of them is Miguel Estrada. George W. Bush is really trying to make inroads for the party with Hispanics. This is the best opportunity that Republicans have had with Hispanic voters in a long time. I urge senators of both parties to rise above the bitterness of the past, to provide a fair hearing and a prompt vote to every nominee. But Democrats were not ready to rise above the bitterness of the past. First of all, Republicans had already been delaying and blocking Bill Clinton's nominees to lower federal courts. And remember, just a few months before, George W. Bush only became president when the Supreme Court stopped a recount in the deciding state of Florida. So you have to go back to that period and how bitter Democrats were about what they saw as a political decision to install a Republican president. In other words, Democrats believed Al Gore should be appointing federal judges, not George Bush. So Democrats started doing what Republicans did during the Clinton administration, blocking and delaying as many judicial nominees as they could. Even before Mr. Bush could make his formal announcement today, Senate Democrats warned the White House they would scrutinize each nomination. I have had three standards, excellence, moderation, and diversity. I believe those are the standards that our caucus will follow as well. Democrats refused to hold hearings on Miguel Estrada for almost two years. One reason they gave was they couldn't get documents from when Estrada had worked in the Solicitor General's office. In September 2002, Estrada finally got a hearing. 
Thank you, uh, Senator Schumer, for having me here this morning. Uh, I do not have a statement, but I would like to take just a few seconds to point out some members of my family who are here. Estrada was approved by the Senate Judiciary Committee, which meant the next step was a full vote in the Senate. If Estrada ends up on the appellate court, he could be well positioned to become President Bush's choice to be the first Latino nominated to the Supreme Court. And this is important. The appellate court Estrada was being nominated for, the D.C. Circuit, it's like the farm team for the Supreme Court. Estrada was being groomed for the highest court in the land. But Democrats did not want that. Internal memos later revealed that some didn't want a well-respected Latino, who they saw as too conservative, to make it that far. So Democrats considered doing something that had never been done before. Democrats have talked about resorting to a filibuster to block President Bush's most controversial judicial nominees. The filibuster basically means that if the minority party opposes something, it can call for an unlimited debate. To end that debate, the majority party, in this case Republicans, would need 60 votes. Remember, the threat of a filibuster had always been there. It was one of the tools that was used to force consensus. But it had never actually been used for a judicial nominee. If they were successful, it would be a first in U.S. history for an appellate court nominee. But it's not clear whether Democrats have the votes or the stomach to do it. Turns out, they had both. President Bush gave a radio address to try to change their minds. I call on the Senate Democratic leadership to stop playing politics and permit a vote on Miguel Estrada's nomination. But Democrats did not give in. In the end, they delayed the vote for months. According to several accounts, it was all very difficult for Estrada. We reached out to him, but he declined our request for an interview. And after more than two years since he'd been nominated, Estrada withdrew. Nina Totenberg covered that story, too. And today, Miguel Estrada sent the president a letter basically saying, I'm moving on with my life. Enough is enough. You're the center of this big national fight. You're just being raked over the coals every day. So I do think it was very hard on him and his family. But the story wasn't over. At the time of Estrada's nomination, a Republican aide who worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee exploited a glitch on a computer server and took thousands of emails and memos that belonged to Democrats. Emails and memos that had been sent during Estrada's nomination process. And that aide shared the files with the Bush White House. The files revealed meetings between interest groups and Democratic senators on the Judiciary Committee about how they should block Estrada's nomination. One journalist wrote at the time that it was, quote, pretty gross the kind of, quote, political posturing and strategizing that none of us really want to hear. The whole episode came to be known as Memogate. And to Republicans, it was proof that the opposition to Estrada was purely political and not about his fitness to serve. Of course, to Democrats, the taking of these files was seen as a major violation. The Republican aide who did it later resigned. Still, looking back on Estrada's failed nomination... Some Democrats actually say they regret what they did. And there's a lot of them who would wish that he is on the Supreme Court right now. Because compared to Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, I think that Democrats would be much more comfortable with Miguel Estrada. Who told you that they were they regret it? Tom Daschle, yeah. uh, Harry Reid, both said, you know, that was probably a mistake. We probably went too far. Daschle and Reid were both Democratic leaders in the Senate. 
We contacted them, and they both confirmed this account is true. Did Dashiell and Reed go into detail about why they regret doing this? Well, they just think uh, that, one, he was he was a good person and probably deserved the opportunity, and that it, it has contributed. I mean, Republic, there have been plenty of fights up to there, but it has contributed to the escalation and the partisanship of the courts. I mean, it just has. Somebody does you bad, does you dirty, you're going to get a chance later. So as soon as you get that opportunity to turn the tables on them, you do it, and you do it a little more. So now, cut to the Obama administration. Republicans start blocking his lower court nominations, using the filibuster in the way Democrats had with Estrada. Democrats get rid of the filibuster for lower court nominees. Then, Republicans take control of the Senate. And we are back where we started this episode. Mitch McConnell blocking the nomination of Merrick Garland. And now, all those guardrails to keep the system in check, the blue slips, the filibuster, what used to be 30-hour debates, Republicans have either eliminated them or scaled them way back. And Nina Totenberg says... It's not like if Democrats at some point do get back in the majority, they're going to reinstate these rules and norms and just go back to the way things were before. Just imagine for a moment that after being, in their view, royally screwed by Mitch McConnell for a very long time, and that let's just say for the sake of argument that (laughs) there was a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate— Why would they then say, oh, well, for the good of the country, we're going to do something that you wouldn't do for a moment, not for a nanosecond? That's not the way politics ain't beanbag. (laughs) And if you've had the crap beaten out of you for a decade or so, you're not going to come back and say, oh, we're going to play nice with you now that we have the power. Right. No, no, that's not going to happen. I actually had a chance to test this theory that at this point, neither side is going to back down with two Senate majority leaders one current and one former. I asked the current leader, Mitch McConnell, if he has any regret about the Merrick Garland decision and how it has changed the rules and norms of the Senate. He said he was only doing what he thought Democrats would have done if they'd been given the chance. If the shoe was on the other foot, they'd have done the same thing. Absolutely certain. I actually asked Harry Reid if that's true, if he would have done the same thing when he was Senate Majority Leader. Harry Reid is retired now and living back in his home state, Nevada. I wouldn't have done it. No, no question about it. I would not have done it. No question Even about it. Even under Donald Trump? I don't care who Even to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg? No, I wouldn't do it. But now that Mitch McConnell has done it, well, that's different. But now that's over with, it's precedent. You have to follow precedent. It's not going to change. It'll never change. So you do it now, once the precedent is... Yes, that's right. In fact, Democrats campaigning for president are already talking about how they would change the Supreme Court. Pete Buttigieg says add more justices. We have 15 justices and only 10. Bernie Sanders says rotate them on and off the court. That constitutionally we have the power to rotate judges. Cory Booker says no more lifetime appointments. Term limits for Supreme Court justices might be one thing. And Elizabeth Warren basically says all of the above. All the options are on the table. I asked Charles Jay, 
why people should care about all this? The Constitution works because we will it to work, because we believe it will work. If we don't will it to work, it won't. In other words, the Supreme Court issues decision on a critical issue in which it orders the president to do something that the president doesn't want to do. If the president refuses to comply, there's not a damn thing that the Supreme Court can do. Like after a recent Supreme Court ruling that the Trump administration could not include a citizenship question on the 2020 census. There were noises coming out of the White House that the president might issue an executive order essentially defying the Supreme Court. It didn't materialize, but that is the point at which we're looking at legitimate constitutional crisis time. And Jay says that kind of crisis could lead to another kind of crisis. It begins with the president, but I think if if the president sees fit to defy, then others who are subject to court orders will very quickly say, well, look, if the president can get away with it, I'm not going to worry because my parties in politics are aligned with the president. He'll protect me, too. In other words, it can have a cascading effect where disrespect for the law becomes, you know, a, a serious problem if you reach that point. Jay says we're not there yet, but we might not be that far from there either. This episode was reported by Tom Dreisbach and me. It was produced by Tom. It was edited by Chris Benderev, Eric Menel, Mark Memet, and Lisa Pollock. Big thanks to NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Charles Jay's most recent book is Courting Peril, The Political Transformation of the American Judiciary. Carl Hulse's book is Confirmation Bias, Inside Washington's War Over the Supreme Court, From Scalia's Death to Justice Kavanaugh. Carrie Severino's book is Justice on Trial. Thanks to Ben Wittes. His book is Confirmation Wars, Preserving Independent Courts in angry times. Thanks to the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum for the tape of President Nixon. Huge thanks to NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Our theme song is by Colin Wamsgans, additional music by Ramtin Arablouei and Blue Dot Sessions. This update was produced by Raina Cohen and edited by Jenny Schmidt. Our supervising producer is Nicole Beamsterbohr. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Hit us up on Twitter at NPR Embedded. That's it for our Essential Mitch series. We will be back in January with a new series about what happens after the terrible thing, the uniquely American terrible thing, when all the news cameras go away. This is going to be a story for how many days? Less than a week. People will forget about us after a week. And I just just don't know what I want right now, right? But I'm going to need more than a couple days of news coverage and some thoughts and prayers because it's our whole lives have been shattered.